This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I invite you to be seated. Well, sometimes before going to bed, one of the things I like to watch is a show about gardening, which probably doesn't surprise those of you who know me. This show about gardening is about how people can make the most of their tiny plots. And there's an expert gardener who comes and he talks with the household about what they want to try and accomplish. So they show him a picture of what they're envisioning their garden looking like. And some do better than others. But inevitably, someone hasn't thought through everything that's actually feasible or where the sun is going to end up on their land or how the land slopes. And so the expert gardener has to help and instruct and recreate the drawing in such a way that it will actually reflect what is reasonable to do in that space. And because the master gardener is actually a master gardener, he can make those corrections. He can ask helpful questions of how they want the garden to look, and he can redo the image. And the result of doing that is that the garden on paper is now actually able to reflect a reasonable garden that can be accomplished by the household. Drawings are only helpful when they actually reflect reality. The problem for us in trying to trace out the deep realities of God and the deep realities of eternal life is that we lack an understanding of all the details that are involved. There are parts that we get correct, and then there are parts that we get really incorrect. We depict images of God metaphorically in the words that we say, in the things that we write, and in the thoughts that we think about God. And one of the dangers in doing that is thinking that the image that we've thought of with God is the totality, the comprehensive explanation of who God is. And that is actually, if you look in scripture, the nature of idolatry. So we read this evening from the book of Deuteronomy, and we heard about the Israelites who were called to give God worship for all the ways 
and all the wonders that God performed in the wilderness. And we know from history that Israel didn't do that very well. They crafted images of false deities, a golden calf. They crafted these images, and because of this, they either worshipped the right God the wrong way, or they worshipped the wrong God altogether. And as a result of doing this over and over and over again, without repentance, God sent them into exile in Babylon, a foreign land, because of their disobedience and their idolatry. And after they return from the exile, when they come back to Jerusalem, Isaiah 44 warns the people again about falling into idolatry or false worship. In verse 13, the prophet says about making an idol these words. He says, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and he marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man to dwell in a shrine. The carpenter's skill in tracing something out might be accurate to what he or she is trying to create, but unfortunately, the image that's being traced out is actually unworthy of the true God whom he or she is attempting to depict in the drawing. Unworthy images of God can lead either to false worship or to a lack of worship. And in the gospel reading today, Satan presents Jesus with a depiction of God that is unworthy of worship. It occurs during the time that Jesus is spending 40 days fasting in the wilderness just after his baptism. Lent, the season that we're entering together, in other traditions is often called the great fast or the 40-day fast in which we give something up and we enter, like Jesus, into the wilderness period. It's a season of increased fasting, of increased almsgiving, and increased prayer. It's, it's a time to push the reset button on life and to ask God what habits we've formed that are not all that helpful and what habits we might take up to help us see God's glory more clearly. It's often time that's us being faithful in the wilderness where God starts to sketch out the real picture of the ways in which he loves his children. So Satan comes to Jesus and he offers him wealth in exchange for false worship. It's an old temptation, but it's something that is very effective and happens too often. Satan paints this false picture of God, a picture that claims that the one who can provide the most worldly success and wealth and comfort in this life is worthy of our worship. Satan depicts himself then as the gift giver. But Jesus, of course, sees right through this, and he reminds him of the first of the Ten Commandments, which during Lent we'll be reading all ten after this week every week. And he says to him, you shall serve no other gods before me. Satan, who's unworthy of worship because of who he is, offers what seems like a good deal to Jesus. But it's actually deceptive, and it's dangerous, it's an empty promise because in himself, Satan can't promise the eternal life that's found in God, that eternal life that we all long to take part in. Jesus refuses the gift with trust that it's his father alone who's worthy of worship. And the temptation strikes at the very heart of who we are in our humanity. We're worshiping creatures we long for the abundant life that is found in the uncreated trinity. 
We want to know the goodness of that life that's beyond this imperfect one. And actually, that is what worship promises. It's a foretaste of that divine life to come. Richard Foster has a very well-known book. It's very helpful, and it's on the spiritual disciplines. And he defines worship as the human response to the divine initiative. And in another place, he describes it in a, different, in a little different terms that I find helpful as well. He says, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. The object of worship matters because proper worship begins to sketch the outline of who God is and how he cares for his creation. Proper worship involves recognizing who God has been in his ancient works and now how he's at work in our days. If you want to know who somebody is, you can usually find a bit about them by observing the ways that they act. And I had a friend when I was in college who every Tuesday would go along Chicago Avenue and he would try and find a homeless person and take them to McDonald's for lunch. It was a great practice. It was a sacrifice of money, but more than that, it was a sacrifice of time. He would spend an hour or maybe two just talking to somebody and hearing their story. And that act of humanizing the unseen and the unheard helps me to see my friend as he truly is. Who he is produces the things that he does. And the benefactors of those conversations had the blessing of experiencing just a small part of who my friend is through the thing that he would do. And the result of that conversation is the recipient would know my friend's name at the very least, but they would actually come to love my friend, even though they actually didn't know much about him. It also reminds me of the phrase, maybe you've heard this phrase, you know, that's just the kind of person that so-and-so is, which can be negative or positive, right? That's just the kind of person that so-and-so is. It can be negative, but it can also be positive. That's just the kind of person so-and-so is. They've just done something that you completely expect them to do because of the things that you know about them. So, of course, my friend would take somebody to McDonald's every Tuesday. That's the kind of person that they are. Or maybe this person, of course, they would drop everything they're doing to go listen to you for an hour about something that's going on. That's the kind of person that they are. The act isn't surprising because we know the characteristics of that individual, but it's the action that verifies what we actually know about them. And it's difficult to think of characteristics about God in some disembodied, abstract way that are untethered from his acts. So it takes practice then to recognize the work that he's doing, that the work is always consistent with who he is. It's a, it's a habit that we need to build, a habit of recognition for the work that he does. So we come to know the overtures of God's love in the practice of worship, acting and living in such a way that we are constantly putting ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Worshiping the Lord opens us up to the possibility of seeing God and loving him more fully. And it's a spiritual practice. We're going to talk a lot about spiritual practices, also known as spiritual disciplines. You'll be hearing those over the next coming weeks in Lent. You'll be here. You've heard, if you came on Ash Wednesday, you've heard about 
the, the practice of submission. Amy did a great job with that. It's online. You can listen to that. Next, in the next coming weeks, you'll be hearing about service, giving, prayer, and fasting. And worship forms the posture for all the others. Since in it, we lay down who we are before our God. And that's a practice both in honesty and a practice in trust. It's building that habit that we open ourselves up, that God starts to trace out a sketch of who he has been in the past and who he's going to be in our story. So we need to make a habit of reading God's word, the Holy Scriptures, so that we can respond to God's word and his works that are depicted in ancient times, and we can be more equipped then to see it in our own lives. If you were to pray the Anglican daily prayer rule or the daily office, you would actually go through all of scripture once a year or once every two years, depending on how long you want the readings. And and if you go through the scriptures, that's where you learn the ways that God has worked and the ways that he relates to his people and all of his deeds done in the past. But worship is something that we do. It's not just something that we learn about. And the best way to learn about it is actually to worship. And so if I sat down and I told you about like the Anglican prayer office, it would be a long conversation. It might be a little tedious and a little hard to get through. But if I told you that what happens in that time is that we have a rhythm of confessing sin, receiving forgiveness, praying the Psalms, hearing God's word, interceding for others, and receiving forgiveness and giving thanks. That's far less daunting. And that's only one way to worship. The forms are vehicles. They're not objects. Many people think of music as synonymous with worship. And in some ways, it's close to synonymous. It's actually a subcategory of worship. And this is where I find Richard Foster's words helpful. He talks about vehicles of worship. And I'm going to take five from him, but there are a lot more. This is no way comprehensive. First, he says, learn to practice the presence of God daily, punctuating each moment with inward whisperings of adoration, praise, and thanksgiving. Second, have many different types of worship experience. And that's where we just talked about adoration, confession, thanksgiving. These are all different vehicles of worship, lamentation, song, prayer in community, prayer by yourself. There are lots of ways to do this. Find ways, third, find ways to prepare yourself for experiences of corporate worship. It's easy to not think about this experience until four o'clock on Sunday, but what does it mean for us to actually prepare in ways during the week? Fortunately, we don't have to go to bed early because we have an evening service, but I would mention that if we had a morning service. But how are we preparing even on Saturday for what's going to happen together when we worship corporately on Sunday? Fourth, absorb distractions with gratitude. We often get frustrated with distractions, but maybe we could stop and we could ask what God might be speaking in the distraction. Fifth, learn to offer a sacrifice of worship. It's something that we produce. It's not something that we consume. And it's helpful. Making a habit of allowing the triune God to be our constant object of worship, 
will shape our joys, it'll shape our disappointments, and the way that we plan our steps. The constant opening of ourselves to God's presence allows God to paint an accurate picture of who he is through what he does. It also allows us, like Christ, to speak against the false depictions of God, which are spoken to us from a lot of different voices in our culture, at home, at work, or in our past. The ways that his ancient acts trace a picture of who he is can be more fully realized in your and my story when we make a habit of proper worship. So today, after our song of response together, we're going to pray something called the Great Litany. It's often prayed during Lent. Um, Thomas Cranmer, who pulled together, compiled our first book of common prayer, used part of what's called a litany or a set of prayers from Martin Luther. And then he used part from, of the Eucharist prayers from a medieval Eucharist rite called the Sarum rite. And then he also pulled together some of the prayers from the Eastern liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And he composed a very long and beautiful communal prayer. And again, it's often prayed during Lent, so we're going to have a chance to do that together. And I want to encourage all of us during the Great Litany to allow the length of it and the breadth of all the prayers in this long litany to shine light on the many places that we would like for God to come and help. I want to end our time in God's word with this poem by another Anglican divine named George Herbert. And it expresses the ways in which our hearts are an altar for offering worship. You'll notice the shape of the poem is in an altar. It's called the altar. You can just receive this poem as a prayer. A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy handed frame. No workman's tool hath touched the same. A heart alone is such a stone as nothing but thy power doth cut. Wherefore each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name. That if I chance to hold my peace, these stones to praise thee may not cease. O let thy blessed sacrifice be mine and sanctify this altar to be thine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now I invite you to be seated as we pray the great litany together. Please join me in prayer. And as Morgan said, this is a bit longer, and we're going to take our time with it. But the words go back a long way. Some of them go back very far. So join with each other and with the church throughout the ages. O oh God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. O oh God, the Son, redeemer of the world. O oh God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the faithful. O oh holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, one God. Remember not, Lord Jesus, our offenses, nor the offenses of our forebears, 
neither reward us according to our sins. Spare us, good Lord. Spare your people, whom you have redeemed with your most precious blood, and by your mercy, preserve us forever. From all evil and wickedness, from sin, from the works and assaults of the devil, from your wrath and everlasting condemnation. From all blindness of heart, from pride, vanity, and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice, and from all lack of charity. From all disordered and sinful affections, and from all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil. From all false doctrine, heresy, and schism, from hardness of heart and contempt of your word and commandments. From lightning and tempest, from earthquake, fire, and flood, from plague, pestilence, and famine, From all oppression, conspiracy, and rebellion, from violence, battle, and murder, and from dying suddenly and unprepared. By the mystery of your holy incarnation, by your holy nativity and submission to the law, by your baptism, fasting, and temptation, by your agony and bloody sweat, by your cross and passion, by your precious death and burial. By your glorious resurrection and ascension, by the sending of the Holy Spirit, by your heavenly intercession, and by your coming again in power and great glory. In all times of tribulation, in all times of prosperity, in the hour of death, in the day of judgment. We sinners beseech you to hear us, O Lord God, that it may please you to rule and govern your holy church universal in the right way. We beseech you to hear us, O Lord. To illumine all bishops, priests, and deacons with true knowledge and understanding of your word, that by both their preaching and living they may show it accordingly. To send forth laborers into your harvest, to prosper their work by your Holy Spirit, to make your saving health known unto all nations, and to hasten the coming of your kingdom. To give all your people increase of grace to hear your word with humility, to receive it with pure affection, and to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. to bring into the way of truth all who have erred and are deceived. To give us a heart to love and fear you and diligently to keep your commandments. To bless and keep all your people. That it may please you to rule the hearts of your servant Donald, the president, and all others in authority that they may do justice and show mercy and walk humbly before you. To bless and guide all judges, giving them grace to execute justice and to maintain truth. 
to bless and keep our armed forces by sea and land and air, and to shield them in all dangers and adversities. To bless and protect all who serve their communities by their labor and learning. to give and preserve for us and for others the bountiful fruits of the earth, so that at the harvest we may all enjoy them. To make wars to cease in all the world, and to give all nations unity, peace, and concord. That it may please you to show mercy on all prisoners and captives, refugees, the homeless, and the hungry, and all those who are desolate and oppressed. To preserve all who are in danger by reason of their work or travel. To strengthen the bonds of those in holy matrimony, to uphold the widowed and abandoned, and to comfort all whose homes are torn by strife. to protect the unborn and their parents, and to preserve all women in childbirth. To care for those who have lost children or face infertility, and to provide for young children and orphans. To visit the lonely and those who grieve, to strengthen all who suffer in mind, body, or spirit, and to comfort with your presence those who are failing and infirm. To support, help, and deliver all that are in danger, necessity, and tribulation. To have mercy upon all people. That it may please you to give us true repentance to forgive us all our sin, negligence, and ignorance, and to endue us with the grace of your Holy Spirit to amend our lives according to your holy word. To forgive our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, and to turn their hearts. To strengthen those who stand, to encourage the faint-hearted, to raise up those who fall, and finally to beat down Satan under our feet. To grant to all the faithful departed eternal life and peace. To grant that in the fellowship of all the saints, we may attain to your heavenly kingdom. Son of God, we beseech you to hear us. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Grant us your peace. O Christ, hear us. O Christ, hear us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.